Before we jump into the narrative of the case, Darren and I come to you hat in hand, as we, once again, need you, our faithful listeners' help. If you have not done so already, we ask you to subscribe or follow to the pod on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Specifically those of you that listen on Apple Podcasts, the subscribing, rating, and reviewing by you, the listeners, is what determines whether or not the podcast is listed in the top podcasts or new and noteworthy, both of which are absolutely huge in terms of visibility for the pod. So if you'd like to see Defense Diaries continue on for the foreseeable future, we ask you to take just a minute or two to subscribe, rate, and review because it means so, so much to us and the podcast. Thanks. Okay, enough of that. Let's get back to it. So for those of you who may not be aware, on October 25th of this year, the Cook County Sheriff, in conjunction with DNA Doe Project, after 45 years, was able to identify one of the six remaining unidentified victims of John Wayne Gacy. It has been determined that Francis Wayne Alexander, born in 1955, was in fact previously known as victim number five. Remember, as we've been going through the horrific task of the excavation of the creep's crawl space, as remains are unearthed, they are assigned a number. With respect to Francis Wayne, who was referred to as Wayne by his family, his remains were the fifth that were discovered. This does not necessarily mean that he was the fifth person that Gacy killed, as that fact, still, after all of these years, has yet to be pieced together by law enforcement. Typically, what has been used in order to try to narrow in on the specific dates that the victims were killed has been the date that certain victims were reported missing. If, in fact, the victims were not reported missing, it makes the task near impossible for law enforcement to determine the date that the victim was killed. Such was the case for Wayne Alexander. What is known is that he was born in North Carolina in 1955. Wayne was one of seven children, and he was raised in Long Island, New York, where he ended up getting married at a relatively young age. And sometime thereafter, he moved to Chicago, what is believed to be in early 1975, making Wayne approximately 20 to 21 years old. His marriage was not lengthy, as the couple divorced a mere three months after they had moved to the north side of Chicago, which was Gacy's primary hunting grounds. The Sheriff's Department believes that Wayne worked at various bars and clubs in and around the city before he seemed to vanish in late 1976 or early 1977. Now, the day after the Sheriff's Department held its press conference, two of Wayne's siblings conducted a Zoom video conference call with the press, wherein some of the information provided by the Sheriff just a day earlier was contradicted. Tom Darden, his press conference, indicated that they believed that Wayne had willingly cut off all communication with his family. Wayne's siblings, Carolyn Sanders and Richard Clyde, during their Zoom interview indicated that that simply was not the case, as Wayne, after leaving New York, would call his mother on a monthly basis to let her know that he was alive and well. That is, until the last phone call that he made to his mother in November of 1976, wherein he had asked her to send a copy of his birth certificate to an address in California, as he needed it to secure a job. At Christmas, his mother waited to hear from Wayne, and that phone call never came. As opposed to what was reported by the sheriff's office, the family, after they stopped hearing from Wayne in December, called the police station in California, located in the town where Wayne had directed the family to send his birth certificate. 
The family considered this to be the beginning of a missing persons report. It, in fact, was not and was only considered to be a wellness check. So the family waited and waited and waited to hear back from law enforcement only to finally hear back that Wayne did not, in fact, reside at that address that they had provided. This was the only contact the family ever had with law enforcement until now. So when the family was contacted by Lieutenant Jason Moran to inquire about some facts about Wayne, they were not initially told that law enforcement believed that Wayne may be a victim of Gacy's. But he did indicate that he was calling from the Chicagoland area, which took his family by surprise, as they had not ever been made aware by Wayne that he had moved to Chicago. They, of course, believed that he was living in California. His siblings described Wayne as a sensitive, loving kid who was always the prankster. They also indicated that Wayne was fearless, as his brother retold a story about a camping trip where his then 14-year-old brother had crawled underneath the family car to capture a copperhead snake that had slithered underneath, sending the rest of the family into a panic. Wayne proceeded to grab the venomous snake by its head as his family watched in awe. He was that kind of kid. The family indicated that while learning of the fate of their brother was absolutely horrible, that they were eternally grateful that he had been found so that they could now grieve the loss of their brother 45 years after he went missing. Rest in peace, Francis Wayne Alexander. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 22. When numbers become names. We have entered January of 1979 as the holidays have come and gone. It would be a long 12 months before a jury is selected in the case of the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy. Yet, there is much work to be done as trial preparation begins in earnest. The number of victims stands at 28 as of January 2nd, the feeding frenzy of the press continues and stories, despite the gag order issued by the judge, continue to make their way to the press. We were in court and uh, I was in there with Sullivan. I don't know why I was down there. It was just a, early in the case. And when Garippo talked about, because uh, your dad and Sam were talking about they can't get a fair trial, Cook County and blah, 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 that kind of stuff. So they're talking about change of venue. And then um, other options they may look at. So he had, uh, he had the judge told Garippo, I mean, told Sullivan and Kunkel um, that he wanted them to assemble as much media coverage, you know, newspapers, television, whatever they they could, you know, so they could uh, he could make a decision on what he's going to do. So I walked back. We walked out of the courtroom, and Jay Levine was there. And uh, Terry says, come on to my office. I want to talk to you about something. And he looks up like he's going to get this big scoop or something like that. So I uh, came in and put him in an awaiting interview room, you know, and kind of stuff like that. So we're sitting in his office. Don't talk about anything. I don't know. What, you know, I'm wondering what's going on. So he says, come on with me. And so he go into the room and uh, he says, you heard what the judge said today. We got to get all this stuff together, you know, and uh, uh, 
any video you can supply us with other whatever you know uh you think you can help us and jay levine says i don't know this is going to be quite the project terry looks at him and says give us the same stuff you gave tovar and levine says okay it's now becoming very clear that gacy's reach was far and wide and many of the surviving victims are wondering why didn't gacy kill me it's an awful question to ponder but one in which anyone who walked away from a Gacy encounter would inevitably have to consider. It has to be an absolutely surreal feeling to learn what would have otherwise have been considered to be just an uncomfortable, possibly terrifying experience with an aggressive, heavy-set man has now literally become a near-death experience. Meanwhile, back at 8213 Somerdale, the evidence techs of the Cook County Sheriff's Police once again lower themselves into Gacy's graveyard for another day of digging. The techs during the course of the 2nd and the 3rd of January cover the remaining quarter of the crawl space with negative results. It would appear that the earth under Gacy's home has finally revealed the last of its terrible secrets. The final count of victims recovered from Gacy's crawl space sits at 26. So with the crawl excavation complete, a team of evidence techs now turns their attention to the rest of Gacy's property. However, as the outside temperature sits at about a robust 5 degrees Fahrenheit, the hopes of piercing the frozen terra firma with mere shovels would prove fruitless. So the searches for the second and the third have concluded in the general consensus amongst those who are making decisions is that the search at the creep's house is going to have to wait until the weather breaks, hopefully in a couple of weeks. The techs in preparation for trial begin taking photographs of the crawl space with the grave markers of 26 lost souls in place. These particular shots will prove to be a very useful tool for the prosecution at trial. As the old saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And there is no doubt that these photographs will be screaming at the top of their lungs. The techs who had attempted to begin excavating the area that contained Gacy's backyard barbecue pit, of course, must also table this particular search, as this is an impossible task to complete at the present time. It turns out that this was a record-breaking January in Chicago in terms of snow and frigid temperatures. It would end up being two and a half months before the snow melted and the temps rose enough for shovels to be able to pierce the topsoil. Those must have been excruciating words for the victims' families to hear as they continue to wait for the news that they don't want to hear. Well, plus with with some of the later identifieds and and pure unknowns, you know, you got flexibility. I mean, who knows? It could be even even with a known, it could be plus or minus a day easily. Right, and plus the facts. I mean, uh, from when you combine his statements. With the family or vast deceased uh, testimony, uh, then you know that, you know, specifically about Butkovich, not to mention that, of course, he goes out and specifically identifies that grave uh, with the spray paint. So, I, I mean, but, uh, and the same thing with Zick and the same thing with Godzik. Uh, you know, you know, you have very, uh, and obviously Peace, you know, you have very specific, not only dates of disappearance, but dates of uh, of the murder, because Butkovich was that night, and Zick was that night, and Godzik was that night, and Peast was that night, and, and there are others like that. But there there are some that might not be like that, you know. 
uh, it's entirely possible for in, just as a uh, for instance uh, again and he's admitted and he, he admitted it back in all the way back in Russ Ewing's book but the you know the basic reason that he was choosing some people on uh, number one of course he craved the ability to make the godlike decision and uh, decide who would live and who would die but the, the the fodder for making that decision was whether they were a threat to him or not. And if it was somebody that was going to rat him out, they were they were going to die. And it wasn't uh, who's the cutest boy or who's got blonde hair or, you know, because he's bragging about 1,500 homosexual uh, experiences at the house over the same time period. Uh, you know, that may be, be his exaggeration, but... Uh, if it's 500, still it's a big number. Uh, yeah, well, he was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, look at the doubles he did. Uh, you know, so. Back at Sir Mac Memorial Hospital, Gacy sits strapped to his hospital bed after his failed suicide attempt. The Cook County Sheriff's Office, after the story of Gacy's suicide attempt was leaked, issued a statement claiming that the story about Gacy trying to kill himself was patently false further claiming that Gacy always had one of his arms handcuffed to his bed. Therefore, it would be impossible for him to get under his bed. The sheriff's office further claimed that Gacy merely fell off his bed from a towering height of 18 inches. Now, I'm not sure who's full of shit here, but my guess is that considering that the county jail falls squarely under the purview of the Cook County Sheriff's Department, that it's the Cook County Sheriff that is full of it here and simply trying to cover their collective asses. In terms of the magnitude of how catastrophic it would be for Gacy to figure out a way to kill himself without being brought to justice, just think of the reaction of the country when Brian Laundrie's remains were found. I think collectively we all believe that he killed himself, and people are incredibly upset with that fact, thinking that he evaded justice and took the easy way out. Now, imagine if Gacy was able to accomplish the same thing. The roar of the people would be deafening. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and trust the leak on this one. In reading it, he's bringing out all of the points. He gives me all this literature about homosexuality in the Bible and uh, demonic plagues and stuff like that. Well, for one, this, I was not led by no demons and I didn't hear voices or anything like that, you know. I think the best way to develop that would be, to, not develop it, but to explain it, would be that. I actually think that I was somebody else at the time. And it, it sounds crazy, it sounds stupid, because I don't know what I did. There was many a time that I always fucked it off. Because I didn't think that there could be anything wrong. You know, why the hell would anybody in their right mind work all goddamn day and then stay up all night and, and fight? You know, there, there were days on end that I didn't sleep at all. And I knew it. That I didn't sleep at all. But what made me continue to do it? I mean, you got to be crazy to fucking work as hard as I did and, and not turn in and go to sleep. What made me stay awake, you know? And on the other hand, evidently what I thought I was doing was relaxing because I don't remember what the hell I did. And, and it, it's kind of confusing, you know. 
You can work 14 hours a day. You think that the one thing you want to do is get a meal, get a hot shower, and get this out of damn bed. Well, it just never seemed to happen that way. So it was almost like I could be dead tired. Sometimes, like when Eddie would say, Come on down to the barn and uh, so, so tired, I don't want to go out. You know? Go down and have a cup of drinks. And not, the next thing I know, it was morning. And I, I don't know why the fuck I would stay out all night. Uh, it, don't, it don't make sense. Would you do? Would you do something for me next next Friday before I? I don't know. You can do it, but before I come in, can you stay up all night? Can, can you kick up yourself all up all night? I you know it, what I mean? I, I find it. Well, yeah, I sit up for four or five in the morning now. I'd like you to stay up without sleeping at all. I was up all night. Well, the last time we uh, could not do it was Monday. I, I was up when we got here, Wednesday. For the whole preceding night. I had a headache. Fitzgerald had a headache. Fitzpatrick had just left. I had taken this radio away. Saying that I was trying to commit suicide. I'm trying to fuck up with me again. And I tried to explain to the doctor. I don't think I'm paranoid. I'm paranoid. I'm not paranoid. I'm trying to get to the end. I'm not stupid, and I know they're fucking with me. And when I, when I say they're fucking with me, I mean, first of all, I've been up here two and a half months, no order was ever written about cards playing with officers, okay? Now, maybe it's coincidental. Two weeks ago, we started playing cards here. I'm sharing next week, there's an order of it. However, on the same token, and, and again, it's coincidental, a commander came up here at 3 o'clock in the morning, found four officers playing cards with the dead. Well, according to Pat, oops, sorry, according to Patrick, the uh, the order is not against officers playing with inmates; it's against officers playing together. But getting uh, back, I want to get back. Jurist on a night shift has come up here repeatedly and told the boys you can't play cards. Okay, well, who's wrong? We'll get it written in the order. I want you to put that down like I told you before. We'll get the orders written. I want to ask you. Next Friday, if you can stay up Thursday night, if you want to do that, it's up to you. I'd just like to talk to you in all different uh, states. All right? So I, I'll tell you this. I, I can do it, but you'd have to come here at like 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I'd be here. Because if you don't, the period between 8 o'clock and noontime, I'll sleep. Yeah. All right. I'll give you a call Thursday during the day. And uh, I'll talk I, about I, I was asking you, now this, uh, you're dealing with religion. The new article that you showed me deals with well, he, he pointed, he pointed out in Romans and Numbers in the Bible, they talk about homosexuality. I don't give a shit about that. What I, talk, what I want to know is whether or not when on any of the occasions that you recall killing somebody, you recall being involved, did you ever have the feeling that one God wouldn't care if these people were dead because they were prostitutes or, or having sex for money? No, but you want to know something? I, I can't recall now when you're talking about religion. I can't recall more than once that I wanted to pray. After they were dead? When I found them in the morning. You know, that prayer for me 
So pray for them for winning souls at the last call. Do you feel that their deaths were their fault? Yes. There's not one of them that didn't, didn't die that I'm aware of that didn't die through their own hands or through their own wrongdoing. Uh, if you want to say that I, I, I tempted them, I put them in temptation, yes. Because understand this, everybody that came to my house, there was never a struggle. Nobody was ever forced into my house. Honestly, you know, with my neighbors watching my house, I was a goddamn hawk anyway. They would have seen me struggling with somebody pulling them into the house or something like that. Everybody came to my house willingly, understandingly, and knowingly what was going on. While thankfully no more bodies were uncovered at 8213 Somerdale, January 3rd turns out to be a huge day for the investigation into the Gacy case. Why is that, you ask? Well, it turns out that the creep isn't done talking. Now, just a bit of background. At this point in time, Desplaines PD does not have access to Gacy any longer. No, that ended when he got transferred to the Cook County Jail. Again, remember the politics of a case like this. Everyone wants to get fat off of it. Everyone. So it's now the Cook County Sheriff investigators that want to take a run at Gacy. Now, my father has gotten on board with the defense team, but at this juncture, on the 3rd of January, he has not yet entered his appearance on the matter in court. So as it stands now, Gacy currently has Amaranti and Stevens, who both entered their appearances on the 29th in Displains. And my father, who is drafting the motions, but has not yet met with Gacy and further is not being consulted by Amaranti about having their client continue to speak to law enforcement. So on the 3rd, the Cook County State's Attorneys approach Amaranti and ask him if they could talk to his client about helping them identify some of the victims. Amaranti stunningly agrees to allow them to interrogate his client, again, as long as he is present in the room. Now, I hate to keep hammering away at Amaranti, but remember, a motion to dismiss the indictment was filed on the 29th of December at the Displains Courthouse. Though the case was transferred to 26 and Cal, nothing else with regards to the case changes aside from the location. So the motion is alive and well and is set to be heard as soon as they assign a trial judge for the case, which is imminent. I'll remind you that the basis of the motion to dismiss the indictment is that the state does not have the evidence to prove that Gacy killed Peast. So why in the world would his defense attorney allow the state to collect more evidence against his client by allowing him to speak? I reject the notion that Amaranti has already landed on the insanity defense, so he's thinking, what difference does it make that Gacy has given them more details, making more admissions, helping them build their case? Well, if that was his mindset, then why the hell do you even prepare and file the motion to dismiss? It's almost as if he's trying to guarantee that the motion will not be successful. Because now any potential argument that Gacy is not mentally capable of knowingly and intentionally waiving his right to counsel and his right to remain silent are out the window. Again, something is amiss. Now, with regards to this meeting, like all of the others, there is no recording of this statement by Gacy, nor is there anything written and signed by Gacy. 
once again, we are limited to the memories of those that were in attendance. It's just not the way it should be done. A criminal defense attorney's role and duty to his client is to protect him from himself when it comes to law enforcement. Our clients do not understand the law or the rights, not intricately at least, or that cops can lie to you during an interrogation in order to get you to give up information. I know I've said this before, probably multiple times, but it bears repeating because his lawyer continues to let him talk. You see, once an accused has asserted his or her right to counsel, law enforcement is forbidden from interrogating that person at all. No more questioning may occur. If they decide to take another run at the individual after the right to remain silent and the right to counsel has been asserted, that statement violates the accused's constitutional right and will be deemed inadmissible. So for those of you out there who are thinking, how do you stop an accused person from talking? If they want to talk, they will talk. Well, if they aren't represented by counsel, that may be true. However, if they are represented, which was the case here, as Amaranti and Stevens were involved from the very first day of the investigation, the attorneys assert their rights on behalf of their client, and further, they have their client assert their rights themselves. That shuts it down. Period. Apparently, if Amaranti had asserted on behalf of the creep, he was now going to allow his client to speak. Again. Once that occurs and the lawyer of the accused is in the room and the questioning occurs, that statement is pretty much bulletproof in terms of admissibility. Unless down the road it can be shown that the accused was not of sound mind at the time of the statement, which we've just dismissed as a possibility just a little bit earlier. For the life of me, as far as just general rules that a defense attorney has a duty to employ on his client's behalf, I cannot figure out why Amaranti let him talk again. Man, that whole agent of the state thing just won't go away. Sam told me, because uh, I just was at his office very recently, a friend of mine uh, was getting married, and uh, Sam was one of the few judges that still does weddings. And you know, this couple, uh, you know, they had been together for quite a long time. In fact, they had one kid together, so Sam was going to do it, and you know, he uh, asked me to come along because somehow they came up with a conversation that he knew me and all that kind of stuff. So I went uh, with him and uh, talked to him a little bit. And he said that last night, you know, that he was at, uh, Casey was at his office, that they were talking and talking. And finally said, I had enough. I just was motherfucking him. And you asshole, you, you're lying to me. What is going on here? This plains police is not going to be following you for no reason at all, what's going on. And, um, and then in case he asked for a shot of booze because he had a bottle of booze in his office all the time and he had a shot, then another shot, and then he started talking and then Sam said he had a shot or two and uh, um, that's when he then told him and he was kind of mesmerized. But I, and I could tell that, I mean, just by looking at Sam, you know, when he came out and was sitting across from him in his office there. So let's find out what the creep spills this time. Now, keep in mind that we have not uncovered any form of written report on this particular statement. So we have to piece it together from the tapes and from the singular report from the Displains Police Department, who were contacted shortly after this interview took place, and from Terry Sullivan's book, 
the killer clown. Boy, I wonder exactly what information they could have extracted from Gacy that the Desplaines police would want to know. So, in the late afternoon of January 3rd, five men gathered in the library of the hospital. From the state side of things, it was Larry Finder and Cook County investigators Greg Bedeau and Phil Bedeker. At some point during the interview, a Lieutenant Braun and an Officer Hine joined in. From the defense, it was Amaranti and, of course, the creep. It became apparent immediately that Gacy had been reading his own press clippings as he instantaneously starts in with the rumors that are floating around regarding an ice cream shop located in the city and one of the proprietors of that business had complained that they had gone in there towards the end of the job and they claimed that it literally smelled of death in there and that after they complained Gacy and a couple of young guys came in and poured concrete over the dirt floor Gacy assured all the men in the room that there were no bodies in that property and to rip up the floor would be a waste of time. Now, a little side note here. Darren and I are not aware of this particular property ever being excavated by law enforcement. And based on a conversation that I have had with a particular officer formerly of the Displains Police Department, who was happy to talk to me, but did not wish to be interviewed at this point for the podcast, we believe that excavation needs to take place. And in part two of the Gacy tapes, we'll be working to make this search happen. We anticipate meeting great resistance from law enforcement as well as from political leaders because not one individual associated with the city want any more bodies discovered that are connected to Gacy. Not now, not ever. We, however, are very motivated to make this happen. So stay tuned. Before Gacy continues feeding information to the state, Finder once again attempts to read Gacy's Miranda rights, which again, Gacy interrupts and recites them himself. Meanwhile, his attorney sits next to him, not saying a word. Gacy claimed that towards the end, that the killings became less frequent because he was so tired from working so hard. Well, based on what we now know, Gacy killed at least 22 young men between 76 and 78. If that's slowing down, it's unfathomable to think of what he was doing when he was going at full speed. Gacy was asked why he placed the bags over the heads or the torsos, and he explained that if the victim would start to bleed from the mouth or nose, he would bag them. He made a point of stating that sometimes he would stick a victim's sock in their mouth, but he would never place their underwear in their mouth. Now, I want to point out that we've been pretty clear about the fact that we don't believe that Gacy acted alone, particularly from 76 on, after his marriage with Carol had ended. If you recall in episodes 17 and 20, we discussed Albrecht bringing in the picture of Dale Landigan and Gacy stating that he remembered him from a bar in Franklin Park, but unequivocally stated that he was not one of his victims. And Landigan was killed in the month preceding his arrest. Now, we can add yet another piece to the puzzle. Because as we told you previously, Landigan's body was recovered from the Displains River on November 12th. He was later attributed to Gacy based on two things. First, they found some of the personal effects, in particular a bond slip, which is what you receive when you bond out of jail, at Gacy's home during the later searches. And second, because he had bikini briefs shoved down his throat. Now, during this interview, they once again showed Gacy the picture of Dale Landigan. This time, he claims that he didn't recognize him at all. 
but he did remember seeing the bond slip in Landigan's wallet that was at his house. What's even more telling is that he claims that he never stuck underwear in his victim's mouth or throat. Again, this is a theory that Gacy did not kill Landigan. All we are doing is supplying you with the information that we have to allow you to come to your own conclusion about what may have happened to Dale Landigan. It's pretty compelling evidence, though. Gacy then spent a good portion of the interview restating previous statements, and two separate occasions after making particularly damning statements against himself, slips in that it must have been Jack Hanley that just gave them that information. It had to be, because he didn't have any personal knowledge of what was just revealed. He goes on to state that he killed his first victim in 72, which we know is Tim McCoy, and stated that he did not kill again until January of 1974. Now, the problem with this math with regards to this particular assertion by Gacy is that we know that Johnny Butkovich went missing on July 31st of 1975. We also know that Butkovich was buried in the garage and was the second body that he disposed of. There exists one still unidentified victim, victim number 28, and remember, that number relates to when they were recovered from the crawl, not what number victim they were who has been given a broad timeline of when he was killed, which is between January 3rd of 72, which again is the date that Tim McCoy was killed, and July 31st of 75, which was the date that Butkovich was killed. The problem is that because victim number 28 is unidentified, law enforcement has no actual idea when this victim was killed. None. It begs the question, if after Gacy started talking repeatedly, that law enforcement started plugging in the information with the victims that could not be identified. This seems to be the only plausible explanation, but I don't think it addresses the claim by Gacy that he killed his second victim in January of 74. I suppose that it could be victim number 28, but there's no evidence of that. And furthermore, there's no part of me that thinks that after Gacy killed his first victim in 72, that he was able to control his unquenchable thirst for a year and a half. I'm not buying it. The creep continues on, stating that he didn't bury anyone under his driveway and that they had recovered all the victims at this point. I guess we shall see if this is true in the near future. Gacy, as legend has it, made one final disclosure at the end of this four-hour statement, and it is the piece of information that will allow Kozenzak to finally exhale. Gacy allegedly informs the men in the room where Rob Peace's jacket is stashed, the very jacket that is supposed to have carried the photo receipt into Gacy's home. This jacket, if it's where the cops in the room claim Gacy said that it is, at least in Kozenzak's mind, will be the only legitimate link between Robert Peace being in Gacy's home. Lieutenant Braun, one of the late additions to the party in Cermak, is the one who calls Kozenzak to tell him where the jacket can be found. And we'll tell you where that is in the next episode of Defense Diaries. As always, thank you for being dedicated listeners. Because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. 
okay, we know where the body's at. We know, we know exactly where the body's at. 